You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm humble whenever I work. Being confident and being humble together, a big bowl of delightful. Mm. You know, so you can't, that's why like generally when I go up and do stand-up, I have nothing prepared. I walk up to stage knowing nothing. You know, when I direct a movie, generally I'm done by lunch or a little after lunch because I don't doubt myself. So I have it in my gut. It's all a gut thing, man. Sometimes uh, I had a difficult scene in this movie I did where I actually storyboarded a scene. So I go in with great preparation, which allows me to be loose. It's freedom. What is that craft? Like what? I can't explain it. I, here's the thing. For me with comedy, I don't analyze it. You know what I mean? So you're looking for like real answers. There's a guy who ran a gig in LA and I went out for coffee with him after. And he asked me questions like you're asking. And I went deep into all of it. I wasn't funny for the next two weeks. It's true. <laughs> and I remember actually Jerry Seinfeld's involved in this because he uh, put this book out written by this comedian called Letters from a Nut and More Letters from a Nut. Oh, yeah, I read that. And I picked them up. They were hilarious, and I got my comedy back. So I don't like deeply analyzing. I don't. I just know things inherently, and that's what I go with. I don't ask why. That's the point. The point is, if, if you inherently know that you have it, don't let anyone stop you. Adversity is your best friend. It makes you better as a person and as an artist. But what kept you going when you thought of quitting? Because I had nothing to fall back on. I dropped out of school. My dad always used to say, have something to fall back on. If I had something to fall back on and, and I kind of liked it, I might have fallen back on it. It's true. All right. Can I tell people that I, uh, that I do your hair? Uh, yes, you okay. can. That could, you could, at Caroline's tonight, you could. By the way, that's, that's beyond Jufro. That's what well, you know. You know what the secret is: is just never bathing and never combing. Oh well, I, the first one uh, bothers me. <laughs> We're far enough away. But the, We're far enough but, away. But yes, to avoid but this the second one, that's your business: the combing. You know. <laughs> uh, so Jeff Garland, um, known for playing uh, Jeff Green, Larry David sidekick on Curb Your Enthusiasm, also known for playing Murray Goldberg on The Goldbergs, had a. I don't know, like a 40-year stand-up career, I feel. Like, how long is your stand-up 30, career? Uh, it's going to be in June, 37 years that I've been a comedian. Thir 37 years. And you're even doing stand-up this weekend at Caroline's? Yes, I don't, stop. I don't stop. Stand-up is my um, great joy. So so with, with so much TV experience, and again, nine seasons, about to be a 10th season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which makes it, you know, a mega hit in TV history, uh... You know, with all your success in, in TV and movies, stand-ups, like, is that, do you feel like that's the core you return to? Well, the, I get great joy 
equal to stand up from curb your enthusiasm. I don't get the same. I love the Goldbergs, but I don't get the same kind of joy. Um, both shows are someone else's vision, but the vision of curb your enthusiasm is, uh, similar to my vision. Larry and I are kindred spirits comedically. Um, the Goldbergs is done in a style. That's not me at all. I'm a, I'm a storyteller on the Goldbergs in terms of, I work for Adam Goldberg. I tell his story, same thing for curb, but the way I go about it on curb is the same way I would go about it. If Larry David wasn't involved. Right. Well, and also, so the Goldbergs is is totally scripted every yes. line, and they're very precise about me getting it exact. And and, and curb your enthusiasms. This almost like an, this amazing experiment in TV history, in that uh, as opposed to the normal half hour show being thirty pages of script, he just kind of gives. We're what, seven a, pages of script. Seven pages of, of like outline, right? Like it's an tells, outline. Yes. What, what like does a typical scene look like on the on it your? It looks script? like a. It looks like a. It's a paragraph, and it's just the story of the scene. So like, uh, uh, you know, Larry says something that's a. Well, on, I bet you I have some on my phone. Hold on, I'll, I'll right. actually read a not from this season, but from a past season. I'll read a thing of an outline. And hopefully people will recognize. Ask me other questions while I'm doing this. Don't just sit there. Oh, oh yeah. you can edit. How, how did you? you how, edit. Did, how did you know you were going to get involved in stand up? Um, so cu- humor okay. and comedy became All right, well, this your, is really your life. important. I from from the time when I was a, a very small child, I remember making my parents laugh, and then in nursery school, I remember clearly making the other kids laugh and loving it. Loving it. And then I was always the funniest kid in school um, all the way through college. I went to University of Miami. I dropped out to good become a comedian. What, what's up? I'm anti-college, so good for you. Well, I'm not anti-college. I'm, an, I'm, I'm pro-education, anti-degree. I'd love yeah. to see how many people go to college if they didn't get a degree. You know? Like, you knew. Because I look at college, like, for my children, who, well, the younger one, is turn, today's his birthday. He's 19 today. Um, he might go to art school, okay? But for me, and the older one is enjoying it. He took a gap year. He has a gap life. Um, the um, Yeah, you can laugh at that. Um, no, but, but uh, I told them both I would love for them to get a liberal arts degree just to spend four years developing as a human and spending four years learning stuff. I don't care about the degree. So right, right, but you, you know, arguably one could say, well, you don't need to be in a school setting to, re- to read books for four years. Like, and, and a great example. Oh, you- no, by the way, I agree. But if you can go to a decent school, there might be a professor who enlightens you. And also the fact of going out and living on your own at first yes. and meeting people. I think it's great for development. That's that's all because we're not developed. I don't like the I'm going to do this to get a good job aspect of college. Well, so well, I'm anti-college that way. And, and to your point about the degree, you can look at MIT, which has their entire uh, course curriculum online. Mm-hmm. You can take every class. You can, can do the you homework. Really? You can take the tests. Well, by and, the way, my opinion then is that you should uh, hold on. Okay, good. All right, I got. Uh, Oh, I gotta. Oh, I'm hitting an area. Keep going. Well, well, you don't have to get the degree, and you can get all the skills, and yet people are still willing to pay a quarter million dollars for the degree because just for the degree. That's mm-hmm. how society has branded it. But anyway, you getting into stand up 
You dropped mm -hmm. out of University of Miami? Yeah, and so I was started I started as a stand-up at 20. So I've been doing it 36 years. It'll be 37 years uh, in, uh, whatchamacallit, in, um, oh, no, I'm, I'm really close, that's all. How, how, uh, how did it go at 20? Your first time up, what happened? Uh, I actually killed. Place was crowded. I went up, I did a monologue from the movie Stripes. <laughs> Oh I did it. I did an Adam West impression, and I told a joke. Uh, the joke was, um, I used to hate saying to my teacher, "Can I go to the bathroom?" And she'd say, "I don't know. Can you?" You know, <laughs> instead of "May I?" And I said, "You know what? I should have just peed on her desk." Uh, no, it's not that. Then, you know, come on, man. It's okay, not so that break good. it down. Like, why oh, wouldn't you do that? By the way, I just found old, old old emails from me and Shakira. I'm not making that up. <laughs> oh, I swear to God, from 2010, I see, I'm not making this up, I see I have a couple emails here from Shakira and one from Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. And wait, why That's was Shakira so, emailing you? <laughs> we were, became friendly. Um, As one does. Well, no, I played, we played each other in an episode of The Wizards of Waverly Place. Oh, okay. And so, um... Um, ah, yeah, that's why you thank Selena Gomez in the acknowledgments in this book. So well, I that was that was a joke. Like she had nothing to do with the book, but I thought it. I was I, wondering. It said <laughs> Selena Gomez and young people everywhere, or yeah. something. It but, was just me making it, you know. So I have this book in front of me called "Curbing It" by Jeff Garland, and it 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 so beautifully describes a season of you filming Curb and at the same time dealing with, uh, you know, food addiction, and and it was interesting to see all the. Yeah, uh, oh. food problems you were having around these very classic scenes that I remember from that particular season, season seven. Right, so I have right now, I'm just grabbing an outline. This is from, um, uh, let's see here. This is uh, season nine, which was last season, um, show number 908. Uh, and give me a number one through 10. Three. Three, okay. So I'm gonna read scene three to you. It's very too short. Give me another number. It's only one sentence. Six. Six, okay. Um, all right, great. Six has got something here. Here we go. Turn it this way. Um, let's see here. Uh, close close on a champagne cork pop. Restaurant table later. Uh, close on a champagne cork popping. The group is back at the table eating. Marilyn uses a lot of ketchup. Larry remarks on it. You're using it like it's a sauce. She says, I like ketchup. It's a little excessive. That's why a lot of a, a restaurants switch to packets. Uh, Funkhauser raises his glass and says, a toast to living it up. Marilyn gets a ketchup stain in her blouse, a big one. It's a go-home stain, which is exactly what she wants to do, but Funkhauser, intent on staying, insists it's not a go-home stain. Marilyn is unmoved and exit. Funkhauser has no choice but to follow, leaving Chelsea and Larry. Larry is not pleased. He looks at the expensive champagne. You know what this means? I'm paying for it. The champagne. That's it. So there you go. So I remember that scene. So so where's the? So tell me what happens then. You get he, he, you know Larry gets a scene like this, or you get a scene like that. Well, he doesn't say, get it. Larry writes it. Writes it. Yeah. So, yeah, so what, what happens with all the characters? Like how do they then do the well, scene? Well, by the way, very few people read the whole outline. Okay, and some people we don't even show the outline to. We just tell them what happens in the scene. Huh. Okay, I'm gonna do what you did. Um, you did that earlier. Yeah, your phone there's earlier. evidence that if you see someone's phone, they pay less attention to you. 
Is there evidence yes, of that? Yeah. Oh. Well, by the way, Science. it is quite the <laughs> announcement. You have lunch with somebody and they go, I'm so happy to see you. Uh, and they put their phone down the table. I'm so happy to see you. But if this lights up or buzzes, go fuck yourself. Right. You know? So um, so they're on the phone. Look at us paying attention. Yeah. Uh, but I was focused on getting the outline. Now you got me complete. Um, what was your question? <laughs> uh, so you tell someone what's happening. Oh yeah, the scene. we tell someone that happened the scene. We don't want to give too much information on a need to know basis, and then we shoot the scene. Then what happens is, uh, like this past season, there's three producers. Well, actually, there's more. There's three executive producers: myself, Jeff Schaefer, who's usually the director, and Larry. And we'll discuss this. The the uh, John Heyman and Carol Leifer are also producers on the show and so a lot of times well it'd be the three of us the, th the three main ones we will discuss the scene what we can do better what should we do differently we discuss it jeff schaefer will tell the actors what he wants and then we do it again then we do it i try doing every take something different and so, like, give me an example where you try different things, because it's because it's all all the lines are improvised, right? Except they're for what's all in improvised. Those, it's just I which wish, is unusual. Gee, I, I wish I had a scene. Well, tell me a scene from the show, and I can I can even think back to what I did. Okay, the scene where. I'm, by the way, I even know what I ate. <laughs> No, not only in the scene, but like craft service. Like I'll remember that day. Right, uh, you describe it in, every, in this book. I describe it in my book. Every and single is, scene, what it you is ate. It's so completely true that I remember craft service, what they had that day, what we had <laughs> Three for Three wheat bagels you get between yeah. takes. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> so, I really remember all, it's a weird thing, you know? So, so okay, let's say take a scene. Um, okay, you have uh, sex with the girl who's the, the character has sex with the girl who's uh, mentally disabled oh, and, yeah, yeah. and you're out of the dinner uh, what was her and name? Susie's Bobo? starting to figure it out what was the kid does he remember that character's name it was Catherine O'Hara yeah who played Funkhauser's sister and so we're at the dinner table is that the scene you're yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah, And And uh, she and I are flirting with each other while uh, everyone's talking so you know they'll shoot me and I'll do some really subtle things you know that you won't even notice where I just nod slightly. And then I, you know, the next take I might, you know, do something. Then the third take I'll lick my glass and do, be really broad. But every take I'm trying something different because I want to give choices in editing. And I also, it keeps it interesting. That's why I can compare working on Curb to stand-up because it's always fresh for me. Right, and you're, yeah. and you're responding to the environment. I'm responding to the environment. Uh, Goldberg's or anything else that I do for that matter, where it's a tight script, unless Patty Chayefsky wrote it, it's 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 work. And uh, Patty Chayefsky, I want to know every word, every nuance, get it right. Um, but a a, uh, a generally like a half hour comedy script for TV, which is twenty two minutes, it's like why are you so sacrilegious? I'm not religious about this, yeah. and I'm the one being sacrilegious and upsets them. You know, if I you know if I if I want to improvise in a scene on the Goldbergs, I have to tell them ahead of time. And so I'm going to improvise here, it, which is, and I have to tell the other actors because they don't know what to do; they get lost. Do you get a, Do you get a sense then, like, hey, I've been doing comedy and humor uh for 35 years i'm a producer on the one of the best shows ever maybe my no, directions are no are good. no no because that would be ego okay and i recognize that mm. and i don't go down that path i'm whoever i'm working with i know what i know you know what you know and we're all good i never 
think that. I never would say that. Um, I do know what I'm... And by the way, there comes a point early on when I'm filming a movie or a show where I'm like, okay, this is not going to be creative and I'm going to do the best I can, but I know that. So every day I'm not reminding people, you know, okay, I did this one movie. I forgot the name of it with uh, Gerard Butler and Jennifer Aniston. And uh, I, re uh, I remember, Steve, what was the name? Um, Bam Bam was the character in that other one. Oh, Bam Bam, <laughs> yes, on Curb. <laughs> but, anyhow, you, don't to, you don't have to find the I'll name. Find it, we'll find yeah. it. I mean, we don't need to find <laughs> it. It's not important. <laughs> Point being is, I remember now I uh, this, a scene the I was hunter, doing, sorry. the bounty don't hunter. Think, don't shoot I remember a scene I was shooting, uh, you know, uh, 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 and it was a, uh, and I improvised only this much, and this is a st big studio film. And the um, director says to me, Jeff, this isn't Curb Your And I already knew it wasn't creative. This isn't Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I just replied, I know. <laughs> I know. So, okay, That's so the closest I've ever come to going, you know, I do this, you know, but I don't do that. So, I'm, so I'm humble whenever I work. Being confident and being humble together, a big bowl of delightful. Mm. You know, so you can't, that's why like generally when I go up and do stand-up, I have nothing prepared. I walk up to stage knowing nothing. Okay, hold on to that one. I, I will hold on to that. Because okay. I want to I wanna, uh, get but to that. But that confidence and humbleness, I'm saying, leads me there. I'm completely confident that I'm funny and I know what I'm doing. Like even when I improvise, as opposed to saying to someone, I don't have to say it. I know I got that, you know? So, but, so when, when in that scene with Bam Bam, yeah. You're, you're trying all these different things, and all the other actors also, right? They're trying different things. Like maybe yeah. Susie Essman to say, you know, you're, who plays your wife on the on the show. Maybe she's like, what, what? Or or maybe Larry's looking around and getting. I'm nervous. actually the only one. Larry will do some experimenting, but I'm the only one who always does it different. Okay. Everybody else pretty much stays in their lane. And then how does a how does a scene get? To, how do you decide then? Okay, this is the scene. This was funny enough. That's an editing. Okay. Oh, that's we feel like we've got it. It's just a feeling in your gut. And that's with, you know, we, by the way, the enemy of comedy in filmmaking and television is playback. And it, you know what I mean? It's like watching things again. And you just know in your gut, like, I don't even need when I'm directing something, I don't even like using the monitors. I like standing off stage or to the side and hearing it, most importantly, hearing it and seeing it. And I know if I have faith in my DP that I've got what I want. So I have it in my gut. It's all a gut thing, man. Like if you feel like, like, oh, I'm laughing. Like this is funny. Yeah. Well, no, then I know it's working. Yeah. But there's a feeling where you're like, we got it. You know, when I direct a movie, generally I'm done by lunch or a little after lunch because I don't doubt myself. And if I have it, I don't need to shoot more. And the only time I shoot inserts, you know, of little things like if we're talking and then we need someone, my AD will say, we need an insert of the bottle. I go, you shoot it. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't want to even deal with that because that's just, you know. And every once in a while I need it. But I don't, I don't use the things that other people might think they need or be insecure about it. What, what, what do you think directors go in thinking that they need? Well, no, director, like I'm the kind of director that when I'm directing something or producing something, I'm editing it in my head. So when I've gotten to the point of, I got it, we're good, um, 
I, I believe that, you know, I think other direct and, and, and by the way, when I'm directing, I got a shot list. Um, sometimes uh, I had a difficult scene in this movie. I did dealing with idiots, dealing with idiots about literally baseball parents where I actually storyboarded a scene. So I go in with great preparation, which allows me to be loose. It's like when I did stand up on Letterman, I would work that set. I would drive around New York and do it 10 times. So when I get there, I'm not thinking about it. It's freedom. The best way to be an actor is to know your line so well that you're, if you're doing a scene and you're thinking about what you got to say, you're not as good as you can be. Hmm. So you want to be as good and loose as you can be. So, so preparation is the key. So, so with Curb, you're, you're not prepared in the sense that you don't know what lines but you're the, going to say. But that's a different type of thing. Okay. Curb, it only makes it better if I'm not prepared. As a matter of fact, quite often, they'll start rolling for a scene, and I'll say to Larry, what's this scene about? And he goes, uh, I don't know. And then we have to cut and have someone come over and explain what we're doing. It's happened before. I always, I always sort of feel watching it, two, two things. One is when you guys are laughing, when you and Larry are laughing, they're like really... Hardcore uh, real, real laughs. Yeah, laughs. And which is we, not seen in TV. Well, <laughs> when we first started doing that, which just happened naturally and including it in the cuts, we realized that I would actually go as far to say outside of like Carol Burnett where they would laugh, they'd break. But I'm talking about characters in a show, in a comedy, that are saying funny things to one another. And in our case, it's a funny situation and a funny thing we're saying. We're not saying jokes. Well, if it's funny and you're improvising it, why wouldn't you laugh? So like when I watch a show like Big Bang Theory and these people are writing, are saying jokes that are written by professional writers that are clever and funny, although I do think clever can be the enemy of comedy, but they're funny lines and then they have no reaction to one another. That's why I can't watch those shows. I know people love them. And uh, I, by the way, I get the appeal of, I said, Big Bang Theory. The characters are fantastic. The situations are, but that style, I can't, I don't dig that at all. So I, I always get the impression that um, the other thing I get the impression of is that uh, you guys are improvising until Larry gets mad <laughs> in many cases. You, like you try to find, and no, maybe he, only gets, he only gets mad. What, you know, he never gets mad, mad at him. the character. I mean, Oh, the character. Yeah. Like no, he, mm -hmm. no, we just keep going until it has a natural ending. And, and the, you know, when JB Smoove entered into the scene, I guess in uh, season seven or. You're I, asking me, I couldn't tell you, yeah. but it was the one where the hurricane survivors yes. came to move in with Larry. And his, his improv improvisation also right. between him and Larry is yeah. like amazing. That can't possibly be scripted. Well, none of it's scripted. Yeah. yeah no, no, no. It's, it's, uh, and you know, truly, uh, JB, what he says surprises Larry. Like, he has no idea. Like, all those phrases that he says, lampin' and all that stuff. Larry is not... ejaculate. Ejaculate, <laughs> ejaculate, yeah. Ejaculate, that was a good one. Um, you know, there's no preparation for it. You don't know that he's going to say that. And so Larry So when you laugh or you're like, what the hell? It's real. And Larry's playing off of that, too. Yeah, like he's uh, must be great at improvising. Yeah, Larry's, yeah, 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 very much so. So, so, so this kind of gets back into how you started because you were doing stand-up but you also got into improv i was doing second city yeah 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 so you moved to took, chicago too and what i did was yes i moved to chicago to do second city and stand-up 
nobody was doing that, which was, that was also the thing. And it was a weird time for me because in the stand-up world, I was respected by my peers, but I wasn't very, the audiences can, were confused by me. Why and is that? I, well, because I was risk-taking and I was doing things that I thought were funny. They weren't very hip then. Like what, 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 what risks were you taking? Um, I don't I, I don't know how to even say that. I don't even know how to reply. I just know I wasn't like other comedians. Can I can I break down one of your jokes that I've seen? Sure. And and, and, and you I'll can tell, tell you, me. I'll tell you when that came in, you know, to so, my So it's it's more recent. It's you're talking about I thought it was fascinating. You you start off by saying you love your kids so much. You know, you would do anything for them, so that's why you don't give a shit what the audience thinks. Oh, that's an old. That's old. Oh, that's okay. not recent. That's that's from. And then I went to my cousin's class for career day. Yeah, yeah. But 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 that beginning there, I love it because a you're establishing yourself. Like no one's gonna argue. Oh, he loves his kids. It's so sweet. And then you say, and that's why I don't give a shit. So you're kind of warning the audience already. Don't even bother to mess with me because I don't care. Right. And then you get into the. Joke. It was like a perfect kind of setup to get into well, the that, joke. That, so I can analyze that. Now, mind you, until I had my children, I, in all sincerity, it mattered more. Like I would be more, to, if I had a bad show in terms of the audience thinking, I would take that on myself and feel like, now there's nights where I go up and I've got a groove going, but the audience isn't so good. And by the way, when I say an audience, Jerry Seinfeld and I have a great dis. Uh, our long-time argument about this disagreement. He feels that it's always the comedian's fault. And I feel that an audience is made up of people's DNAs, their, the way they were raised, where they were raised, what they had for lunch, how, if they're taking care of themselves, if their love, what their love life is like, what their job is like, what they did that day. And you're throwing this, these strangers into a room together. So you're bound to get any kind of reaction. So I go up, I know I'm funny. Like I know when I hit the stage, I'm funny. But by the way, there are nights where the audience is fantastic and I don't have a groove. That one still kills me. That happens once a year, twice a year, and that's very depressing. But the audience thinking, it happens, you know? So I, if I go up and I've got a groove going and they don't dig me, I, I'm a big bullet too bad. And by the time I've left the stage, I've even forgotten. And that started with having children and they were the priority in my life. Um, but, yeah. but I like how you specifically... It's almost like you 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 set it up so you warn the audience that they can't affect you. It well, seems like calculated. wasn't conscious. Okay. It was just me being in the moment. And so then it's class day, and the first funny premise is that, you know, there's like um, uh, a doctor and then a, a, a fireman. fireman. So these two people who are like saving lives, and then you go up there, and they, they kind of tell well, But them, also little children are well aware and look up to firemen. Right. And they're well aware of the doctor. They've been to the doctor. A stand-up comedian? Come on! Right, so you go up there and you say, "Well, I tell stories," and you're and 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 you're you start to panic because you see your your son this is reacting. A true story, by the way. Yeah, right. So you see your son reacting, and you're like no, it's bombing. My, it's my niece. My kids weren't born oh, okay. yet. It's it's my it's my uh, yeah. It's my no. It's my first cousin, and um, yeah. And you're 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 She's panicking because she she thinks you're bombing in front of a bunch bombing. of little kids. I am bombing, and then I cut to. Booger and duty, and I kill. Yeah, and so, so, and then, but then there's, so that was funny. That punchline, duty and the wave of laughter comes in, and you're yeah. winning these kids. But then 
what was brilliant was then this kid comes up to you. You said the, 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 the further joke is this kid comes up to you and say, listen, you know, that I, I, I don't know if you stole that duty joke, but you know, you're on the road. I'm just a kid. I can only stay here. That's mine. And yeah, yeah, that was yeah. written. That was written. And then, uh, yeah, I said, no problem. Yes. That, that part I wrote, cause that's absurd that a class clown right. would tell me, you know, you do it out there, but just don't do it here, man. It makes me look bad. <laughs> yeah. And then so, there so there's a, some writing. There was a Lenny Bruce reference that I threw in there. I can't remember what it was. But yeah, that so was. So there's some writing. It's not totally unprepared. Well, that was, that, yes, that was writing. And the other story I had told before. So that was prepared. That came from, I think, my HBO half hour comedy hour, you know, uh, that I filmed a number of years ago. Um, yeah. And, and, and so, so, so. Where there in that joke do you think where's the risk taking? Uh, I'm just well, curious. On that joke, the first time I did it, I had no idea where it was going to go. I'm just telling a story, and also that last joke at the end, most audiences wouldn't get that joke and didn't get that joke. The class clown coming up to me, it was too hip for the room. I, I want. Here's the thing: when I go on stage, I want to communicate. I want the audience to dig me. I want it to be. Uh, a, a wonderful experience. I don't need it to be. But like, but like you say, so, you, were t you were telling a true story. Like this actually yeah. happened. And as opposed to, let's say, many comedians, or let's even say Seinfeld included, they'll write down material, and right. that's the material they perform. It right. may or may not be true. Right. Sometimes, it's, often, it's not true. How do you take a true? How do you personally take a true story and find the funny in it, or do you think it just happens naturally after all these well, years? Well, here's of experience? the thing. I, like last night, I started talking. Ta okay. So, by the way, I wanted to finish a thought that I had because I think it's pretty interesting. I think it is. Because what happened to me at, at Second City and down the block was Zanies. It's still there. It's, both are still there. Um, so, in the stand up world, I was respected by my peers for doing different types of things. Um, I sort of was on the, the term alternative comedy, kind of started with myself, Janine Garofalo. Bob Odenkirk. There was a group of Can us. Can you define it? Alternative comedy? No, no, because it's bullshit. Uh -huh, okay. It was just basically, it was. I remember where it came from. I can tell you the exact moment. I lived with Janine Garofalo. We were roommates, and we were watching MTV, and I think it was Pearl Jam. I, I'm just thinking, we're watching, and I go, now, music is so defined by, you know, uh, categories and types, you know, styles of music, genres, or whatever. That comedy, you go to a comedy club. You don't go to a music club and one night it's Mozart, the next night it's the blues. And that's kind of like what you're what in, in the world of comedy it is. There's nothing. So we said, I wish there was alternative comedians. I can tell you without a doubt that that's where that started. No doubt. Because we were the first ones doing that type of stuff. I know that. There's a good David Cross, um, Laura Keitlinger, um, 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 Colin Quinn, there was a group of us that were different, edgier, you know, but there is no such thing as alternative comedy more. It's bullshit. But I still want to understand what the, what's the risk taking that you guys were doing that other comedians were Well, not other comedians up. were pandering. I see. Completely pandering. And, and they were, they would guide their acts to what they thought the audience would mm. like. We did what we thought was funny. That's so the same with Curb. So Curb's a great example of the same exact thing. Larry David and I, when we first started Curb, the idea that our show would become iconic, 
not even anywhere in our minds. We didn't even think anyone would like it. We thought there's no way people are going to find this funny because we're laughing too hard and we're having too much fun and our sensibility is not mainstream. And and by the way, I think you, you might not give yourself enough credit. You pitched the originally the idea of Larry David returning to stand up, but but filming also the behind the scenes of him. Yeah, and, and, and that, that was became my the idea. series. And that became the series. I approached him with the idea. I didn't go to the Olsen twins. And um, <laughs> yeah, and that's how it started. And then when we were filming, first day of filming, which was at the HBO offices when we we're pitching the executives about Larry doing a special, um, he said to me, Well, would this be great to do as a series? And in my head, I was like, yeah, yeah, great. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll be starring in a series with Larry David. Like, that's going to happen. Wow. But that reminds me of your character, Jeff Green, on the series, which is that you kind of just, like, Larry says something, and you say, like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Like, yeah. your, your character sort of, like, goes along with whatever. Goes along, but I also. And smiles my, to it. The purpose of my character, I, I've been a lot more active the last couple of seasons, especially this season, in terms of being involved in the comedy. My character, for the most part, is about exposition. Like, my guy will set up what's going to happen for Larry through me. Right, like you got to meet yes, George or Jason. Or I, we have a scene where we're clarifying what's going on. Uh, that's that's unfortunately me. My best stuff on Curb throughout the years, without a doubt, cutting room floor. There are some scenes. There was a scene of Larry and I waiting by the cemetery, sitting outside the cemetery. We're waiting for Shelley Berman and Richard Kind, and they're late to the cemetery because they wanted to do a test run uh, of Richard driving Shelley to the airport to know the best way possible. And Larry and I filmed this scene outside the graveyard. I'm more proud of that scene than anything I've ever done on Curb. It's not in the show. It never got cut because it's always for what's on story. That's the sacrifice, what's on story. So even though it was really funny, So the only stuff that generally makes the show with me is stuff that helps move the story along. So, Not, so you— but wait, I, I wanted to just finish the one yeah. idea. You're a question guy. Hold on one second. Seriously, I love talking about this. So it's at, 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 at the comedy clubs, I'm—, I'm, I'm Respected by my peers, but the audiences are confused by me. Okay, I'm doing things other, you know, okay? Whereas at Second City, when I walk out in the in front of the audience in the ensemble, the the audience loves me. The second I come out stage, they're like, we love that guy. He's funny and everything he said. We love him. But my peers didn't respect me. What do you think is the difference? Well, I just wasn't I I think that one it just, it's developing because eventually both happened in both. Audiences d dig me and my peers dig me, I hope. Well, I don't, I, you know, they, they, I'm sure, whatever. Um, but in, in terms of as an improviser, I, um, I, I hope I'm respected. I think I am, but I know I'm not not respected, you know? So, and it, it, so I didn't have, so it was a weird time for me growth-wise. I was in my mid-20s. And it strikes me also, like you were, you worked in in the box office. I guess at Second City with, with Stephen Steve Colbert. Colbert. Yeah, you were roommates with um, Conan O'Brien. Yeah, Conan O'Brien and Engineer Garofalo. So, so, so often, and John Stewart sublet from me. 
and then and you yeah. also uh, directed his his special. His I directed uh, 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 Unleavened, uh, uh, John Stewart's Unleavened, and I, I and uh, Dennis Leary Lock and Load. But the thing with both of them is I didn't direct the cameras. Um, we went on the road together. I developed the show. What does it mean, develop the show? In other words, I I would open for them on the road. We go on a tour, and then after my set, I'd sit down and I'd write notes about their stand up and the show, and I would help them develop their set. For both of them, say directed on the stage by Jeff Garland, and then Beth McCarthy Miller, great director, lovely woman, directed um, John Stewart's, and Ted Demi directed. Um, uh, Dennis's, but creatively, I had more input than they had. So, so it strikes me though that even in the beginning of your career, and that's where Curb came from, by the way. It was the idea I said um, to Larry when I was pitching him on. It wasn't even pitching; we were at lunch. I said, "If you ever want to do a special, I think it should be um, the making of a special because of the things I've seen developing Stuart, John Stewart's and Dennis Leary's. So it should be behind the scenes of you developing a special. special, And then when we get to the end, you don't have to do the special because that's the special. You can back out, you know? That, and that's, that's what we did, yeah. I feel like yours and Larry's humor are very similar. Kind of, again, uh, almost cringeworthy like this. You right. know, you're, you're, you're the classroom joke. Just, right. you know, where like, ugh, a doctor, a fireman, and then me. Right. Like, there's like that cringe, that scary yeah. moment right there. But Larry is so much better than I am <laughs> that it kind of blows my mind. I, I worked at a movie with Eddie Murphy. He's so much funnier than I am. It kind of blows my mind because I have great confidence in my skill. But like Larry David, I'll give you an example of a Larry David premise that he wrote. This is one of my favorite bits he ever did. This is stand up. What if there were answering machines in the old west? You know, the sheriff leaves you a message and then, you know, uh, hey, uh, Larry, uh, uh, me and we're, we're going after the Dalton gang. Uh, got a posse set up. Come on down. We'll be at the uh, old saloon at whatever. And then Larry leaves a message two days later. Sheriff, Sheriff, I, I, I missed your call. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I would have loved to have been on the posse. I couldn't make it. You know, whatever. Brilliant. I mean, just the idea of that taking every aspect of it, the simplicity of it, you know, I just am in awe of it. You know, and then he takes things like what it would be like masturbating with 103 degree t t temperature, um, you know, all these different thoughts, you know. I mean, he's just, you know, I have moments of brilliance. He's just brilliant. And he, he, it seems like you're more of a storyteller also yes, than he is. He's very making up these so. premises. And also I'm more about... Um, like I don't try and make scenes funnier. I try and make them better and more real. So when we, when, when Jeff Schaefer, Larry David and I get in a circle after a circle, we hold hands. No, <laughs> we stand together after I'm thinking in terms of what works in terms of the scene being good, not in terms of, and Jeff Schaefer's always in a, always thinking about how do we make it funnier? That's like his, but he, that's his strength he brings to it. So we all bring things. So I'm about storytelling. Look, I'm a big, like Larry and I uh, went to go see Lawrence of Arabia. It may have been his second time seeing it, third, after as a young man seeing it in the theater. Um, I've seen the movie now 30 times, you know. I study film. I watch 
you know, all the um, the great masters. I watch all Truffaut's movies or Billy Wilder. I've seen them all many times, and I can tell you the nuances, how they cut something, Hitchcock, all that. He doesn't care about that. You know what I mean? That's not where he just does what he does. I do what I do, but I'm someone who thinks about, uh, you know, storytelling and the overall feel of it. He must be thinking of storytelling too, though, to, to write, though, even though Well, he's writing page. a story. No, no yeah. doubt about it. I'm not saying the dude's devoid of storytelling, but that's not as much. There's only one person I can compare Larry David to, and this may, I think you'll get it just based on your hair. Um <laughs> Nat Hyken. Do you know who Nat Hyken is? No, Heiken I don't is? know. Nat Hyken created two television shows, uh, Sergeant Bilko and Car 54, Where Are You? And if you can watch any of them, if you have access to them, there's some DVDs, not that people buy DVDs. I remember I Sergeant Bilko Yeah, Bilko kid. with Phil Silvers. But anyhow, what was amazing about those shows is it was like, you know, I remember on The Tonight Show how there'd be a person with the dominoes and they'd hit them and they'd go all in different directions and then they'd meet together at the end. But how they went all these different directions but then came together, that's how Nat Hyken wrote and that's how Larry David writes. Well, Where you don't know, it goes all over the place and then it all comes together. And it, it seems like he, and this is where I think there's a, an interesting thing about Larry David, which is he's actually a great leader and motivator of people. Like, think about the way he did that for Seinfeld. That was the way to keep all of the main, the four main characters right. engaged on every episode was to involve them in a storyline, which I was unusual think, I don't think that he did it for that reason. I think that's just the way he wrote. He's not a big, oh, what's the B story? You know? So often when I've been involved in the development of shows, writing on shows, acting on shows, everyone gets all caught up. What's the B storyline? What's the A storyline? Well, the B's big. He doesn't work that way. I don't work that way. You make a funny, interesting half hour of television. That's all your job is, period. A story, B story, people, that's not, you know. And by the way, Larry would do A, B, C, and D. And they'd all meet at the same time, you know? The point is with Larry and I, there really aren't any rules that you have to follow, you know? Because there's exceptions. Yeah. So so again, when you were starting up, let's say you're 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 getting your skills, you're around all these great people, which which must have helped also, like Colbert and and John Stewart and Janine yeah. Garofalo and, and Conan. Uh where where do you think you Again, Amy Sedaris was a waitress at Zany's when I was so a young funny. comedian. I remember her coming up to me. I'm taking classes. Uh, good, and I actually was condescending. I went, "Good for you." <laughs> so, so not again, knowing that I'm talking to someone who's going to be one of my best friends, but also someone who is not only one of the funniest people, just a, a true. Like I know, I, I there's a book by uh, J Jimmy Heath called I Walked with Giants about jazz in the 40s and 50s when he played with these people. I have walked with giants, such as Amy Sedaris and Larry David. And do you think that's what's helped you with, even with, with telling a story, finding the funny across the story? No, I don't like, look for the funny. See, here's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, I'm going to do it through acting. Okay. okay. Because it's to forget the writing aspect. Well, the writing aspect is I just write what I write. And as long as I'm real... It doesn't matter. So I'm going to give you an example with actors. So there, you, 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 you approach a scene, it's, it's a comedy, okay? And you audition for the scene. If you put a spin on anything, you're ruining it. You're taking away from the funny. You're going, it's too much. 
uh, a writer's job is to write a situation and something that if you play true to it, the comedy will be there. If you're inherently funny, there's going to be extra comedy because maybe the way you say it naturally works. But the number one mistake that an actor can make or a writer can make is trying to be funny. Or maybe a stand-up. Or, or a stand-up. You're either, you have two levels. There's two levels. There's the craft and there's someone who's got the magic or the skill, like it just, it's there. If you don't have the magic or don't have it to a great degree, practice the craft. And the craft of being a good stand-up, of being a good actor is about being true to the writing, being true to the material. There's a, there's a term I have for actors who bring too much. I call them enemies of comedy because they're ruining the scene by making it about them, not spinning things. You know, and you don't need to do that. I met Neil Simon a couple times and I was talking to him and he said the minute an actor would come in and try and be funny with his stuff, they weren't getting the job. Hmm. So I think that the, if you're really funny, that comes in the door with you. And if you're not really funny, just be honest. What, and that's par it. what parts of the craft of stand-up, which clearly led to, you know, the later success and writing and so on, what parts of the craft did you feel you had to develop in the beginning? Well, it's not even a matter in the beginning, because in the beginning, I, I, who I am now as, as a comedian is, is, re, is, is it's recognizable, you know, from where I started, but I didn't know that I could just, you know, the, the most structured I am now is I might have an outline that I improvise from. Like when I film my special, I'll have an outline. That, that was I'll just have. an outline. No, I will. When I, oh. anytime I've done a special, there's an outline. Um, so that's as close as I get to the point of not having anything when I go up. The craft is, for me now, that when the audience isn't great, I know I can do that hour and they'll think they saw a really good show. They didn't, it wasn't as good as they think, but it, but but I'll make them think it was. What is that craft, like what? I can't explain it. Huh. I, here's the thing, for me with comedy, I don't analyze it. You know what I mean? I know things, like I said, about the actor not trying to put a spin on it. That's about as far as I want to deep. So you're looking for, like, real answers. Like, when I say real answers, not me avoiding, but I don't know the answer. I once went out. There was a guy who ran a gig in L.A., and I went out for coffee with him after. And he asked me questions like you're asking, and I went deep into all of it, I wasn't funny for the next two weeks. It's true. <laughs> and I remember actually Jerry Seinfeld's involved in this because he uh, put this book out uh, written by this comedian called Letters from a Nut and More Letters from a oh, Nut. Oh, yeah, I read that. And I picked them up. They were hilarious, and I got my comedy back. So I don't like deeply analyzing. I don't. I just know things inherently, and that's what I go with. I don't, I don't ask why. I want to I want to bring Iris up for a second because so Iris Barr has been uh, also on Curb. Uh, famously, she was a uh, like orthodox super, super orthodox Jew. She was stuck as this, the episode. She the was in a few lift. episodes, but the ski lift is the famous yeah. episode that she's in, and she's a perfect example. Now, Iris is in fact funny, and Iris can be broad funny. She, you'll do some broad things, not on Curb, right, right, right. but she can, but. She knows what she's funny about her and that she auditioned for the part. She walks in the door and she's true to the moment. There wasn't a moment when we were filming 
that the scene, any scene with her, that the fellas got together or the fellas and the gal and went, oh, what do we do? It was like, she was not our concern. The concern was, all right, what do we have to do to make this better? Having nothing to do with her because she was perfection. She <laughs> was true to her character. You, she was the character. And 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 the, the premise of the scene itself was funny, right? She has to jump off a ceiling. Well, Larry David wrote it damn well. It's funny. You know, he's not going to even give me an advanced copy of the outline. It, I had no a, idea about the rest of the episode. Right? So when I went to audition, I got one line and said, you're on a ski lift. You have to... You can't be there after sundown. And so that was, yeah, and I remember yeah, walking yeah. in and auditioning uh, with Larry that day. And then when we were on the set and that edible underwear came out, I had no idea what the edible underwear was about. I didn't even yeah. know what it was. I was like, what but is that? you played true yeah, yeah. to what that character's reaction to right. be at on. She didn't put like, she didn't think, what can I, here's the thing that people do. And these are usually unfunny people, not untalented, but they're, they, they don't have the great comedic skill. And that is they'll think, what can I say that's funny back to them? As opposed to, it was hilarious because of her outrage and confusion. She played outrage and confusion, which is what someone would do in that situation. Right, and were you, were you, and not to say you were overthinking, but were you thinking right at the beginning of the scene, oh my gosh, I know it's going to be improvised. You know, I have to be outraged. And No, I I think I, I when I get into a character, I'm I'm really like just playing the scene. And when we're connected, you're not in your head because I don't She's know what's going to... She's got a calmness about her, okay? Yeah. A great calmness about her. And um, you, you don't react. You, see, all right. Richard Lewis, I'm outing him here. I love him. He's my brother, and he's actually one of my idols. But early on in the years of Curve Your Enthusiasm, he would write notes to himself about the scene, what he wanted to do on a card, and he'd hide it on the table. And Larry and I would look for it and take it away, which led to outrage on his part. But you don't want to do that. And Richard's been great on the show. His best work, I think, has been even recently because he's so present and being present yeah. in the moment when the situation happens. And look, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's so much more enjoyable and natural and productive when you're just there. So as people say that always, like, oh, just be present, be in the moment, what does that mean to you when you're on stage, say, uh, what does that mean? What do you... That means last night at Caroline's, I'm, I'm hearing the thump, thump of, of music. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and then I say, is it coming from there? And the woman sitting to the right goes, yeah, it's coming from here. I go, open that door. Let's see what's behind there. <laughs> and she opened the door, and it was like the bar area. And then uh, they came and said, oh, we're sorry. We'll turn it down. Well, we'll turn it. But they said, we'll turn it down for you. I go, how considerate. And then I did a whole thing about how when the shows go on, they, they start dancing in the bar area, all the employees. And then actually people come down, and it becomes a very popular disco at night while the shows are going. <laughs> I went on this whole riff, uh, which doesn't sound very funny right now. Thank you for laughing, Iris. But you meant it. You knew where I was going. But the point is, I'm in the moment. I'm not like, oh, what's you're my just next try, You're just trying to get back yeah. to your material. I have listening skills with the audience, which is what I do. If I hear something in the back or someone goes, oh, I hear a sound, I'm stopping everything I'm doing and going, why would you make that noise? What's going on? Like, I... There's a natural curiosity to the world. You have to have a curiosity when you improvise, when you act, as to what's what's going on around you, you know? I don't think you can improvise if you're in your head. 
I mean, I think it's impossible. Well, yeah, you but, have to listen. Otherwise, how can you re- you know, you're not. Yes, a, you, but that's why so many people fail right, at improvising. Right. Like there's a game called Switch, which is you people, two people start out, they get either a first line of dialogue and then they start doing a scene. Someone yells freeze, tap somebody out, takes this thing and then takes the scene. This is the key phrase, takes the scene in a new direction. So many people look at it as I'm going to tap them out. I got to think of something funny to say in that moment. I learned from, uh, I remember the person who inspired me the most when I was a young actor at Second City was Dan Castellaneta, Homer Simpson. And Dan wouldn't even really pay attention to what was going on. And he'd yell freeze. And then he'd go out and he would just take on a character and start talking. And so you wouldn't think beforehand what he was going to do. So when I... I often, I don't want to look like I'm showing off, but I, if I could and not look weird, I'd face the back of the room and just yell, freeze, get up there, boom, and I'm just going to start talking like a person or there's a situation that I create. I'm not trying to be clever. I think, by the way, I know this is getting all so analytical about comedy. I think the, I number, the number one enemy of comedy for me, besides, the well, it goes hand in hand, cleverness. When you try and be clever, you're never going to be funny. You might be clever. That's why they call certain comedians humorous, because <laughs> they're just clever. They're not funny. Well, you know, people always used to describe Larry David as a comedian's comedian. That's what right. you, why you always see yes. what you see about yes. descriptions. What does, what does that mean? Like, that almost sounds like a negative, like a double negative. No, it means, and Larry David, when he was a stand-up, was a comedian, com- comedian's comedian. Um, and only through Curb has he become more like an iconic figure, you know? Um, it means that your style of comedy and choices are only funny to other comedians. Like you're playing to a crowd, like it's being a baseball, like you can't use sports because success would mean success no matter what. But it's like, an audience isn't going to go. Oh, that what that isn't going to laugh for the same reasons that a, a a comedian laughs. That's the area I lived. Not as extreme as Larry. Huh. You know, Larry would make choices that would make only comedians laugh. I don't know. I don't know how to ex- expound on this stuff without sounding like an idiot. No, no, <laughs> or that, losing that, my no, humor. no. That sounds that yeah. sounds good. What and, I what I loved um, when working on Curb was unlike a lot of the half hour network sitcoms that I did before. I felt like Larry wanted everyone around him to shine and be fu- and be funny. Oh, very much. And there's so. really no ego involved in that show. And it was always about lifting up. I mean, and you're always playing. There is no. Sometimes he's the straight man. Sometimes the other person. It's constantly right. this dance. Right. When otherwise, when I do network sitcoms, suddenly the star wouldn't like that another person had a funny line, and the writers would change it. Mm. And suddenly your funny line was you gone. Would see, you would see that happen. Oh my yeah, I saw it on many a show happened, I've done. Happened to me. Suddenly the line disappears, and the, I can remember yeah. two really big circumstances. <laughs> also, where I improvised something, and suddenly it was in the mouth of the star. <laughs> And and how did you get the feeling that Larry wanted everyone to shine? Like, was there anything specific? I just think that, you know, when I came in, he lets you do your thing. If you're being authentic and real, you know, yeah. and it's encouraged and it's not, it's, there's really no feeling of ego. You're just playing the, you're playing the scene, playing the characters. And it turns out that the storylines are so brilliant and everyone is part of it. So it really is kind of a, a te- I don't want to say team effort, but it is. I mean, it's all serving the story and everyone yeah, you serve the story you yeah. serve the show yeah that's that's what it's all about and when larry doesn't like something he comes over and i can see it in his face he, he makes a face i call it the lemon face like he's been sucking on a lemon that's what it really looks like and uh 
Only once did he ever, no, twice did he ever walk up to me after a take and he was muttering swear words because he, <laughs> he, the other actor was not doing it, you know, so. Well, you, uh, you know, when you were, what was so brilliant also in, in the arc of the entire series when you had that Seinfeld reunion yes, season. It was kind and, of meta in a yeah, way. Just like in Seinfeld, when they were pitching a show about nothing, that was yeah. that was the first time it, my mind was blown by a sitcom being meta. Right. And then it happens again in, in, in Curb. Curb so, yeah. so clearly Larry has this meta way of, of thinking. No, he, he, yes, you're right, but it's not conscious. I don't think he even knows what meta is. <laughs> I'm being serious. He but when, when when Jerry and that whole cast was on the 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 set and you were doing your thing yeah. and you know you had been kind of Larry's sidekick throughout, I'm just curious. This is a stupid question. Did you ever feel any jealousy of Larry and, and Jerry's rapport while you were? Well, I, you know, I never stupid was on, question. No, no, it's not a stupid question. It's actually a good question because my character that season specifically was kind of pushed back. Hmm. Um, I had plenty of moments, but especially when we were on the Seinfeld set, I had very little to do. I was more there as a producer than I was a, an actor. But two things. Number one, I was never on Seinfeld, never asked to audition for Seinfeld, and that makes Larry angry today. He's, <laughs> it, it's like as much as I regret that, he regretted it too. He was like, I, I, it just was very upsetting. But that being said, here we are on the actual Seinfeld set, and I'm a producer, and I'm giving notes, and I'm involved creatively with it. I watched in awe. It was just like was a so, bucket list moment? I don't have any bucket list. Okay. So, so, so go on. Sorry. I live life as if I, I do just, do, I do, I do my, my bucket list already. I don't fuck, fuck the bucket list. Anyhow. Um, <laughs> title of your No, next no, book. no. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a, it's hard to get a good placement with a title of fuck bucket list. <laughs> um, but anyhow, I, I'm on the set and it's just a collaborative effort and I'm standing back watching. And also I'm watching those actors, that group do their thing. And and Larry even said to me, he goes, like he he stood, he goes, this is where I used to stand. And then I mean, this is where I used to sit. And then I stood behind him when he did that while he's watching the scene, the way he sat, where he sat, because we sat, we shit we shot on the set on the stage where they shot Seinfeld. So I was the exact spot right behind him. So to me, there was so much joy in all of that. Jealousy? No. You know, jealousy, if I'm not asked to participate, even as a, if the, here's where there's jealousy. Uh, I think you shouldn't be around when we do this season. Yeah, you'll <laughs> still get paid, but go, go home. I'd be very jealous of everyone who was involved. No doubt about it. But that didn't happen. So, so I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have a uh, hard, hard out. Stop. Yes. <laughs> hard out. And I tell you what, I'll go to 1207. <laughs> All right, good. Okay. Well, what, what's a, what impresses you the most about the upcoming season? I hear it's, it's. I well, what I like about it. See, for me, the Fatwa storyline, this is just a personal thing. I thought it was funny. It was too big for me, my mm. taste. I love the minutia when Curb Your Enthusiasm it goes into the small subtleties. That's more my style. That's the way I, I like things. I like things small and believable. And, you know, and so this season has been maybe my favorite season we've ever done. And this is all I can say about it. Something that has happened to all of us, and in different ways, we all have said after the reaction to that, in our anger, I wish, 
and Larry does. That's all I can say about this season. I love it. I love the people we have on it, all the performances. Actually, I would say it's more comedy gold, which is the most hackneyed term, but more more wonderful stuff in a scene than I've ever experienced. And uh, is there going to be a season 11, do you think? I, I do not. But ask me that after season <laughs> nine. I'll tell you not ten. Ask me every Yeah, because after season eight, I asked... Carol Liefer, because she was on the podcast, and she yeah. thought that's it. There's no season nine. Yeah, she was. Well, she she was in season eight, I think. Uh, uh, I don't remember. Yeah, she was. I think there was a. She was the mother of the Kool Aid kids, <laughs> where, uh, where Larry dropped his pants, which is one of my favorite moments. Where I told Larry that he had to pretend that he's wearing women's panties because I found Susie found panties in my glove compartment. Anyhow, um, point being is, I always think it's the last. So I think it's the last, and that's sincere. Don't know. Could be another. After 10 seasons, is there ever a danger of the characters trying to uh, uh, be caricatures caricatures of what they know the audience has loved? No, because we don't give a shit. <laughs> Just like you said in my stand-up. Larry David is loaded, okay? He's rich. The only reason he comes back every season is because he has something he wants to say. He wants to express. And there's no way that I'm going to ever become a caricature. I'll leave the show before I do that. But in the world of Larry David, that's not possible. And and when you go back to from that, from such highs of that to stand up, and I don't mean it as going back. That's the, the wrong phrase. But what are you, what drives Creatively, you? Uh, my stand up is more creative than Curb for me. So there's no... So you just love it. I love it. There's no drop-off. There's a drop-off when I go to the Goldbergs. And when I say drop-off, I mean I'm at the highest of my skill level and create creativity doing Curb Your Enthusiasm and doing stand-up. When I do things that I'm paid as an actor for, I'm limited by the writing, the situation, a mainstream sitcom such as the Goldbergs. Proud of it. Love the actors, love the writers. The crew is actually my crew when I shoot movies, okay? So um, I love what I'm around, but the it's not creatively fulfilling for me. You know, it's a job, to be frank. And, and so it's a joyful job and one that, you know, I really enjoy and I'm honored to be part of. People love that show. But Curb and my stand-up, that's where I'm at creatively. And and Iris, yes. If, if I'll I'll let you ask a question to to Jeff. Is there anything you wanted to know uh, uh, during your time? Iris has had access to me, unlike you. <laughs> <laughs> Iris has spent quiet time with me. Iris has had lunch with me numerous times on the set. Well, uh, and, <laughs> and Iris, was I warm and welcoming to you? Yes, you were very warm and welcoming. That, Why are there need. rumors otherwise? No, that's all I need people to know. Oh, okay. <laughs> that you come He's, on the set yes. and I'm warm and welcoming. Yes, and everyone creatively was, yes. I'm right there with you. Oh, 100%. And, and she's involved. Do you know what I mean? I make sure, you know. Because Larry, as much as my love for him, he can be a bit distant when he's in his head. Like you don't know what he's thinking. Right. He's off, and that's but where we, we I were come on in. a ski lift together, high above. Yeah, for, he was stuck for extended so periods of time. We did bond. But he's, he he hates when bond. I say this, but he's a delightful man. He's lovely. Yes. You know, why do you tell people? Like he prefers <laughs> that people think that he's this jerky curmudgeon, and he's not. Well, again, that's why I think. He must be so different from that. Maybe not. Huge no, he's different. not that different. That's but, part but he of is him. motivating everybody to to be their best, which right. you don't necessarily get the sense right. yes. from that character. And by the, the way, when I make comedic choices and he likes them, 
He is so generous. He laughs hard. Be like, oh, do that again. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? And so, no, he's, he's a, he's a he's fucking amazing. delight. Yeah. I love that guy. So I, I just want to mention again, also your book, Curbing It. Yeah. There's two versions. There's Curbing It, which was the second one, and My Footprint, which is the hardcover. Now, I called the book originally My Footprint. Then they said, we want to put it out as a paperback, but you got to have Curb in the title. Uh. And so it was about uh, losing weight and trying to go green while making Curb during the Seinfeld season. There's a lot of great stuff about the Seinfeld season. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I called it Curbing Book. Curbing it, the second one. It made me think, you know, you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint. At yeah. the same time, you're trying to reduce yeah. your body fat yes. and deal with these addictive qualities. Like, mm. were you making the connection of kind of just reducing? Well, your... I wanted to reduce my footprint. That's why it was called my footprint. Uh-huh. My footprint, <laughs> if I lose weight, it'll be lighter. And I want, but what I actually, if someone reads the book, there's some interesting things in the green Part of it, the, that kind of footprint, Ed Begley is fascinating in there. Yeah. But that's the boring part of the book. I'd say skip those chapters <laughs> if you ever read it and just read the stuff about curb your enthusiasm and me losing weight, trying to lose weight, because I think that stuff's the gold. And Again it? with the gold. I've never said that before. Comedy Suddenly gold. I'm on your podcast. Do you still and- remember... Now that you, you, you're eating differently or yeah. less, do you still remember everything you eat? Or was that kind of categorized when you were oh, eating no. more and there was no, like... No, I, I still remember healthy choices, but not like... Like, I'll remember a day eating a bunch of Twizzlers and why I ate the Twizzlers, how I ate the Twizzlers, my feeling after I ate the it's Twizzlers. It's like a mnemonic almost. It helps yeah, you kind of... Yeah, it was like <laughs> I was through it, you know? I was like... Yeah, I was very present with my addiction. And there was a weird kind of... Um, fun that the, uh, often the other cast or other people you knew were having with you was just trying to basically expose you to food as much as possible. No, only Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. He's the, he's the, if there's a villain in that book, it's him. Hey, hey, Garland, do you smell the pizza? There'd be pizza. What are you going to do? That pizza smells so good. It's like, come on, man. Yeah, you know, like, like Julia would go, look at you with the salad, big salad every day. She was so impressed and so supportive, you know. Yeah, uh, no, it was Jerry. Well, <laughs> the book curbing it. And by the way, if you ever can find the audio book of that, All right. by the way, I don't even think it's in print anymore. The book, if you're fine. No, I just but, bought it. I bought it a week ago. Oh, look at you and yeah. your good looks. Um, <laughs> the audio book is me reading it, <laughs> but uh, Dave Mandel had this idea of uh, a, a, an audio book of as read by the author as told to. So my audio book <laughs> is as read by the author as told to Leonard Nimoy. Through J.J. Abrams, my friend J.J. Abrams, who had worked with him, I got Leonard Nimoy to come into the studio, and I recorded him doing all these different reactions. So the book <laughs> is, that is as, amazing. Read, as read by me as told to Leonard Nimoy. It never caught on with the press. Someone should do a reissue of it. <laughs> oh, I my think it's God. pretty great. I got to get that. And then I love the name drop of J.J. Abrams. Yes. <laughs> Any. Any, any word on Star Wars? I wouldn't put you on Star Wars. I, I was in it. You were in it? Yeah. What were but you? But I, I cannot talk about what I was, uh, but I was an alien. That's all <laughs> I can tell you. I went through four hours of makeup. Uh, the movie comes out 
Maybe December. Next, this, yeah, next, next, next Christmas. Uh, I look and they like just announced stuff in Chicago. I just missed them. They're coming here this week, and I might see them. But yeah, uh, and I'll get to see. Here's the thing that Star Wars people would be jealous of. Whenever JJ makes a movie, I see his early cuts. Like he wants notes. You know, he's like, "What do you think? What's tracking?" And even my, I remember my son Duke, the first Star Trek movie that JJ. Uh, did Duke was maybe he's 19 now however long ago that was I brought him and he was literally the only kid he was the first kid who saw the Star Trek movie so JJ had lots of questions for him you know just in terms of what's tracking so you'll see a rough cut of the next Star Wars it won't be it'll be uh, along the way it'll probably be but I'll see I'll see early an early cut of Star Wars I'll actually I what I like and I hope that he does is he shows me the cut when he's feeling great about it and he doesn't want to do any more changes you know, I, I remember know. Super 8, I gave him a note and he actually did a reshoot at mm. Bad Robot of this moment that wasn't tracking. And I was so proud. JJ, come on. <laughs> I was like so shocked and honored that he, you know. Oh, my God. And by the way, another guy, best guy ever. Uh, you know, the most successful people in Hollywood, for the most part, delightful. Very delightful. It's the unsuccessful ones that are assholes. <laughs> They're bitter and they should have. You know what? I, I actually tell people, and this maybe has a lot to do with your podcast, and this might be a, be a good way to close. I have a thing, and I talk about it in my stand-up. Don't follow your dreams. I feel that. Unless your dreams are what you're great at. <laughs> do what you're great at and let your dream be your hobby. Because... There are so many people failing, and I'll just use uh, Iris R thing. You know, <laughs> I'm like, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> well, by the way, no, there are so many people. Iris has a successful career. She's great. But there are so, because she's doing what she's great at, okay? But there are so many people who do, I was going to use you, who do what we do, who are good. Oh, they're good. Oh, he's a good actor. Uh, she's a good singer, you know. Good is not good enough. You got to be great, at least to have a career. You can't be good and have a career. You can be good and get occasional work, but you got to be great. So it's much better if you live in St. Louis and you're a, a good singer and you're like, do I move to New York to pursue my singing career? But you're great at math. I say stay in St. Louis or live wherever you want. Become a successful accountant, and with all the money you make from being an accountant, buy some recording time. Make some music. Give it to your friends. And then, of course, let your friends tell you that you made the right decision. So that's how, so, so that's as, appo as, thank you. as opposed to going to New York, being depressed, not making it, thinking, do I have to quit? And by the way, I think I'm pretty funny. I almost quit. A couple of times. But don't you feel like, you feel like it's a meritocracy? Because I sometimes see very successful, mediocre people, and that drives me insane. No, I, I, by the way, I disagree. Really? Yep. yep there, okay. There's no such thing as a, as a very successful, mediocre person. Because I can point to those people and go, they're charismatic. Like, okay. they're not a good actor, but their charisma helps them. Something about them, even their people skills to right. get in those well, situations, okay. they excel at. So are they really successful? If they're really successful, then their work is admired. 
Do you know what I mean? Yep, so yep. yes, maybe they get a part because of their, their good bullshitters or whatever. That's what they're good at. So they're using that skill to get ahead. But I don't know anyone who's mediocre who even anyone admires. I guess not media. I mean, that specific talent. Like you're seeing a performance of someone on Broadway and you're right. like, eh. Do you know what I mean? I'm just... I, yeah, they're, they're good. But are they going to do two, three, ten shows where they're the lead? Right. No. Right. Okay. They're going to get away with it once or twice, and then someone's going to go, you know, I saw them in that. They weren't very good. And suddenly, career's over. How do you avoid smoking crack on it? Because, like, even you said, you, you had doubts. Smoking, smoking crack meaning, like, uh, the, the woman thinks she's a great singer, and there's, there's even a, a effect. You always think you're, you're, you're greater than you are. Well, and, and by the way, those people are always so confused that they haven't made it. I know comedians who come off stage, and it was a mediocre, sh mediocre show at best. I remember this more from my younger days. And they come off thinking that they killed. That's a flaw in your personality. That's a flaw in the way your, your brain mechanism. It's like face blindness, yeah. career blindness. <laughs> you don't really see what's going on. But those people don't become successful. But what kept you going when you, had, when you thought of quitting? Because I had nothing to fall back on. I dropped out of school. My dad always used to say, have something to fall back on. If I had something to fall back on and, and I kind of liked it, I might have fallen back on it. It's true. And then when I had children, I was broke when I had my first child. And so I was like, I'll give myself a year because I have to take care of this kid. Hmm. And then within a year, I had a development deal and things were. But I just kept doing what I'm doing. That's the point. The point is, if, if you inherently know that you have it, don't let anyone stop you. Adversity is your best friend. It makes you better as a person and as an artist. Jeff Garland, thank you for coming also on My Iris Bar. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much. Good luck for season 10. Here's the thing that I feel bad. <laughs> I, I, keep going, keep no, going. No, here's the thing I feel, I feel bad for your listeners in this way. They don't they get to, to see that hair. Day. No, they don't get to see that hair. That hair is just something to just, dear God, man, look at you. Look at you. It's probably the only way I, look at look at the rest of me. It's probably the only way you're, I, you're, I meet women. Oh, 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 by the way, you've met a woman who digs that hair. Look at you. you know, however it is, you're, you, by the way, you're a delightful man. And I think Thank that you. with the hair, see, look, I think that there are women that truly do dig me. I'm a certain flavor, a certain <laughs> thing, you know, and I think I'm a unique flavor and a unique thing such as yourself. And uh, I just wish your listeners knew the joy because it would bring them joy. <laughs> well, okay, how do I get over my jealousy of the fact that you're going to see Star Wars before I do? Here's the sadder part. I don't really even, I'm not that big a Star Wars fan. Oh. <laughs> uh, you're I know. Me. No, I know. Um, but here's the thing that I love about it. Like, I liked um, the first uh, couple, like the uh, Empire Strikes Back yeah, yeah. and Star Wars. I really loved Empire Strikes Back. And then I kind of, I saw all of them. But like, eh, like I see all the Marvel movies, but it's like yawny, yawn, yawn, yawn. And then, but J.J. is so great at this and has such a deft touch that as a Film fan, I look forward to seeing what he does with it. And it's the last one of this story. Yeah. And so I know, I know at worst, it'll be very, very, very good. That's the worst. I'm hoping for better, but in his hands, oh, it's going to be great. Well, good luck with 
curb oh, when you're jealous. Uh, stop being jealous of anyone. All right. Because you got listen. you and that face and that mind <laughs> and that hair and the sense of style. You got it going. Should don't I leave the room? I leave you alone? I don't know. I have no desire to make out with him. But that being said, you got it. And Iris, you got it too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Iris is a rocker. <laughs> Iris is a great improviser, great actress, great person. She's just a fucking rocker. Thank you. Well, love welcome. you too, Thank Jeff. you. Thanks. Thank you both, and thanks. Okay. All right. <laughs> I know I kept you over time. But...